welcome to the Leading for Good podcast. I'm Elaine Herdman Barker, co-founder of Global Leadership Associates. In this series, we'll be talking with special guests who are transforming leadership. We'll be asking leaders how they tip the world towards the good, learning about ways we can stretch our thinking and discovering so much more about a leader's footprint. With strategic thinkers from all over the world, we'll investigate just what leading for good means today. I'm here with Andy Samuel, CEO of the North Sea Transition Authority, previously known as the Oil and Gas Authority. We're talking about energy as a public good, asking, can our leaders work with today's complexities and plan for a future in which the true wealth of energy is shared? We're also speaking at a time when oil and gas companies appear on the wrong side of public debate, which is now brutal, as scorching temperatures bring the reality of climate change home. The UN Secretary General, Antonio Guterres, recently warned that fossil fuel companies have humanity by the throat and are using scandalous tactics and false narratives to distract us from the risks we face. Meanwhile, the industry's profits are soaring and people, particularly the world's most vulnerable, are expected to suffer. The picture, of course, is far from simple. We've all become acutely aware that our world is not yet geared up for living without fossil fuel. So what do we do? And Andy here is right in the midst of it all. For the last eight years, he's been tasked with optimising the UK oil and gas production while leading a transformative North Sea energy transition. You really are right in there, Andy. How is it to be working at the heart of our Earth's issues? And what are we to do? Thank you, Elaine. Uh, Big question. I think the first thing I'd like to say is it's a real privilege, the role I've got. We have access to, to leaders. We have convening power. We see a huge amount of data and we try and be very evidence led. But, but we also create a real purpose in what we do. And with that comes a real responsibility because we are at crisis point. We have been for too long, actually. And, you know, the reality is the climate emergency is speaking loud. We have possibly or probably passed some irreversible tipping points. And I personally find that terrifying, whether it's the, you know, what's happening in the Arctic and the Antarctic, permafrost changes in ocean circulation and reefs. You know, these are massive changes. Who knows what that really means for the future? So there's a real urgency. And that's why I was delighted when we moved from being the oil and gas authority to being the North Sea Transition Authority, very much signaling that, you know, it's all about transition. You also mentioned that we're not yet geared up and you know, we're, we're decades arguably behind where we should be. In the UK, we still rely on oil and gas for 75% of our energy needs. So with the best will in the world, we can't just switch it off overnight and move to renewables. I think the good news is I believe there's growing consensus actually helped by the, the tragic events in Ukraine that renewables are the obvious destination and we all need to get there quicker. There are still some technical issues to, to solve with renewables, particularly around intermittency, but I'm entirely confident that they can be solved and, and solved at pace. We now need a master plan, though, to actually affect the transition. You know, there is a lot of wind power that needs to be installed, and that also needs to take account of other uses of the North Sea, including fishing, and the, but also the biodiversity. So 
even that transition is not straightforward. And, and I think through that, though, we do actually have a, a duty to, to keep the lights on, you know, the, this notion of energy as a public good. In the UK, therefore, actually, with industry and government, there was a deal brokered called the North Sea Transition Deal. And I actually think that's an exemplar for other nations to follow. And many other countries are deeply interested in what we are doing in the North Sea. And whilst there's a, a natural tension and I, I believe a, you know, a healthy drive to do more, I think there's also power in stepping back and actually acknowledging what's actually happening. So we've already cut emissions through the oil and gas industry by 20% since 2018, but we got the industry to commit to actually halving them by 2030, which is no mean feat. And with the Climate Change Committee, we're actually pushing even more aggressively for a 68% reduction. That would be massive. It is achievable. It requires extraordinary acts of leadership and collaboration. But I guess the point I'm making, there is already a plan in action. There's work to do to add, add detail to it. But um, you know, this has been a, a good debate over the last couple of years. And I, I'm, I'm encouraged, but there's an awful lot more still to do. Thank you, Andy. And there's so much in there that just like to gradually unpick. One being the question of time, which I'll I'll come back to. The other is the systemic nature of the issues that you and the rest of us are facing. I can imagine feeling confounded by the complexity that's in front of you. And you mention extraordinary leadership. And I wonder what that looks like. Are we looking for a new form of leadership, do you think? We are, I believe. Looking back on what we've done, I think, well, we were brought in to really drive collaboration and actually get industry, government, regulators working together in a very different way. And when we started, the, the question was all around optimizing oil and gas, but now it's become much broader. And we're having to get sectors that haven't worked together to actually work together in very different ways. I think hopefully through the pandemic, people had a bit of time to reflect. And I certainly was in more conversations with leaders where they reflected on the interconnectedness of everything. You know, I, I firmly believe that everything is connected and that the leadership required is to understand the whole system and the complexities and, and the nonlinear nature of how things play out, but not to be paralyzed by that, but actually to choose a bit of wise action, constantly adapt, be agile, be really open and curious though, and collaborate I, I have some examples where this is happening, so maybe it's easier to to talk through that to kind of illustrate it. Because a lot of what we do now offshore is is directly impacting the onshore. Again, this interconnection. Just last week, I went up to the Liverpool Bay area. So this is North Wales, the northwest of England. It's an area where, with ENI, an oil and gas company, we partnered and actually issued a, a carbon storage license a few years back. This is so that they can use depleted gas fields, repurpose the infrastructure and actually store carbon. What was really heartening last week was we visited four of the 40 onshore industrial users who are now looking to use that offshore facility to store their carbon and also to um, use hydrogen as an alternative, much cleaner fuel. It's blue hydrogen where, again, you need to store, store the carbon. So we visited a cement plant that's looking to take out 800,000 tonnes a year of CO2. This is massive out of the system. We visited one of the largest refineries that's looking to halve their emissions and also create the largest green hydrogen facility in Europe. 
we visited a glass manufacturer that's looking to reduce their emissions by 90%. And we visited a, a waste recycling center with combined heat and power that's looking to take the carbon dioxide out of there. All of this, different industries working together, actually under the current government scheme, partly in competition, but putting that aside and saying, we need an interconnected system that stores the carbon, that has hydrogen distribution, and, and we're in it together because this is, this is important given the climate emergency. And actually, we think it's going to be good business because going forward, consumers will hopefully choose clean glass. They're going to want cement that has much lower carbon. They're going to want to know that their waste is being put to, to proper use, and they're going to want to know that the refineries are doing the right thing. So I, I personally was hugely heartened. And what I saw, though, was leaders stepping up and saying, we're making a stand, we're putting the environment first, but we, we can convince our shareholders this is good for business. We don't need to put these in opposition. Actually, good business is good for the environment. That's a great example, Andy, of combining the social responsibility and the economic viability. And I wonder, what has enabled that to happen? Because I have heard you speak before about the importance of broadening participation, broadening it out at a local and a national level, so that, as you say, leaders come forward and engage with, with the issue at hand. What has enabled that, do you think, to happen? So really seeing the whole picture, the bigger system, and how working together creates value and opportunity we did it for the whole North Sea a couple of years back. We we published a study, our energy integration study, which basically showed that rather than just being a, an old, difficult oil and gas province, the North Sea is, is one of the crown jewels in the UK and will provide 60% of the UK's carbon abatement requirements through carbon storage, through offshore wind, through hydrogen. When we first came out with this, people were, said, well, look, it's interesting, but it was little more than that. Over the period of two years, it's now become mainstream. So I think just putting these ideas out there, letting them percolate, letting them people see the possibility. We've now got down in the Bacton area, similar to the High Net and the Liverpool Bay area, people now taking that vision in the local context and turning it into reality. So we can start to decarbonize a lot of the power to London, for example, you know, one of the the major cities obviously in Europe. So I think it's showing the possibility and then finding leaders who are willing to to take a risk, be bold, and actually just open up to each other, be transparent on their business models, work together, be less competitive. The tone of what you're saying seems to be much more about uniting together rather than struggling against. So it's almost a a more peaceful, if I can use that word, a more peaceful movement than a fiercely competitive. Would that be fair to say? Absolutely. Why do we need to be competitive? There's more than enough opportunity for everyone. This transition creates so much opportunity. I was very pleased to see in the US, it recognizes that through this transition, doing the right thing creates huge opportunities for business. And, and we don't need this struggle. We don't need this polarization. I think there's about 370 billion of investment will come through through that. The most important thing though is you know, the US is hopefully now on track to reduce emissions by 40% by 2030. 
which is massive for the states and, you know, one of the largest emitters globally, you know, a whole system view of a transformation across a, a whole set of industries, power, and industrial users. Very exciting. And it it also speaks to the, an idea of getting on the road together, which is, I would say, is a shift in thinking at a leadership and an organizational level and hints at sharing, sharing of wealth, sharing of power. Do you think there is that willingness to share issues like wealth, power, control? I think we've got a long way to go. So I've I've highlighted a couple of standout examples. We would like to see a lot more. You asked right at the beginning, but, you know, with the privileged position we have, we see a lot of different companies. And I think one of the things we constantly try and do is take the best and inspire others to do the same. And I think, you know, this is massive cultural change, actually, we're looking at within companies. On a positive, the industry that I tend to work with the most, the oil and gas and energy industry, transformed its safety culture. I'm now looking to it to do exactly the same around its kind of environmental and particularly the emissions culture. And it did that through a lot of process, but also a lot of hard work, I would say, helping people, you know, fundamentally change their beliefs that actually doing good in this way is good for business. But, you know, yes, you may make a slightly smaller margin, but it's sustainable. And ultimately, if you lose your your social license to operate, you, you've lost. And so this is good business, but it, yeah, it's not yet factored in. I as much as I'd like into the kind of quarterly reporting cycle, the bottom line, I think it will. I think it has to. Encouragingly, I'm not seeing many companies use the current very dire security of supply crisis and affordability crisis as an excuse to kind of go back completely to the old ways and give up on the, the transition. Quite the opposite. And that that was a risk. I know of a number of companies, for example, that are looking to go public on the markets and they're, they're, they're under as much pressure as ever from the ESG side to demonstrate that they're on the right track to 2030. So more and more, I believe good business is, is the right business. But to really change these cultures, you know, we're, we're, we've got a few years of work ahead for sure. Looking at time, it was something I, I was hoping to come back to. It's at the centerpiece of organizational life, isn't it? You in the oil and gas business for a very, very long time and do it faster, do it now. Do you feel that organizations will be able to bring that sense of urgency, that same sense of urgency with achieving targets, delivering into their drive for net zero? Yes, if they if they transform the culture, because it's not it's not there yet. Yeah, I think actually they, they need to go. I, I would like to see companies go right back to purpose, actually, and, and their, their values. And really kind of, we, we've done that in the North Sea Transition Authority, quite kind of intuitively, I think, redefined our purpose as the context has changed, as the needs of the government society have changed. And that's been hugely energizing. We just at our last offsite didn't fundamentally change our values, but change the definitions to bring them up to speed with our current mission. And that really then helps us with day-to-day decision-making and actually makes things congruent because we felt a, an incongruence. Whereas I think companies 
have not yet done that work and i would really encourage it. i think it's hugely value adding it's creative our team certainly got a lot of a lot of value and energy from it then you can start to do things at pace but you've almost got to go a bit slower initially reflect have difficult dialogue really iron out what do you really stand for and then you can you can go uh, go at pace at the moment things are still geared up too much for the the current paradigm and you know just the uh, continued oil and gas extraction and that's clearly not sustainable i don't think it's actually what the shareholders really want and it's not what the companies say but their systems process and culture are still get up for that largely and and it also comes down to the individual does it not you know what are the values and the principles of action for individuals i was thinking about you said difficult conversations and engaging with wider communities and bringing them together can be a bit painful as well can't it a bit exposing so something is also required of the individual to have a, a sort of a place to go to and an inner resilience to work through what can be uncomfortable situations do you see that as being something for organizations to work on and support individuals with I, I do. I mean, maybe starting personally, I found it very uncomfortable a couple of years ago when the industry really started being under attack. And I had to look at my role, my organization's role, and actually deeply reflect. And through that, took to my board the proposal that we actually fundamentally change our strategy, get into action in a very different way, become effectively a, you know, a regulator of, of emissions. And I was delighted to get the support, but it came from a very uncomfortable few months. But I, but I valued that. And but it's a great question. How do we support staff through that uh, to make it a positive experience? And, and I expect that we will continue to be uncomfortable. Things are shifting so quickly. The bit that I think we'll find difficult and I think is regrettable, I don't have an answer to, is I think the polarization goes too far. It can actually be very hard to kind of get to the the truth, if there is such a thing of any matter. And again, I have a, a privileged position where I sometimes see what I, you know, pretty much close to the truth, but the way things are reported, it's either brilliant or terrible. And it's, and that doesn't help people on, you know, what are genuinely quite tricky, nuanced debates. What, what I think, you know, again, if I look at some good examples, I think what the climate change committee did with their citizens assemblies, it is something we can we can all learn from actually getting a, a truly representative cross-section of society informed by real experts with the luxury of time to really debate difficult issues the recommendations that they came up with i think are brilliant and if i was a policymaker that's the kind of that that that's the wisdom i would be encouraged to tap into just taking a, a very simple example that constantly kind of troubles me but you know aviation and how much anyone should fly because you know currently it, it's utterly unsustainable you know their recommendation was well maybe we can all benefit from one relatively low cost flight but after that we all need to pay an awful lot more effectively the, the true cost of the carbon that that seems very common sense to me and if it's kind of endorsed by a rep representative group what not to like so I think there's real wisdom in that kind of dialogue, but we need people to be open to each other. And if we can somehow take out, I mean, the activism is good. We need it. But what I don't like is the distortion of 
facts from both sides of the polarity, because actually we do need some real evidence and uh, you know some real facts to support the right roadmap through this transition. And it can be very seductive, can't it, the polarisation? I, As I was preparing for our conversation today, I was noticing words that are in the air. Scandalous, the word I mentioned earlier, deceitful, profiteering, gambling, all to do with the oil and gas. What toll does this take on leaders in organisations? And we become influenced by our environment and how the world is seeing us. Is there a, is there a risk that by this language that's being used may understandably being used, leaders begin to withdraw, that they become more defensive, that they don't want to engage in the very things that you are advocating that they get involved in, which is more open dialogue, which is bringing more people together of different views and ideas to create almost like a thunderclap that creates a freshness. Because that's where the disruption to patterns come from. You got any views on on that, Andy? On this toll on the leaders? Yeah, we we see it, and and often it's exactly the the talent and leaders that we we desperately need for the future who are most impacted by it, and retreat or in cases withdraw entirely from an industry that actually needs that talent to work from within to create a better future. So it it is a concern. It, it's it's a real balance because I, you know, I, I personally increasingly welcome the activism. I think it's vital, but it's how it's done. And I think if we can take a bit of the judgment out, depersonalize, but you know, but 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 there is room for emotion. So, but it also makes it quite easy for the wrong leaders to dismiss it when it becomes so extreme. Mm. So yeah, I think at the moment the balance has gone too far. And and looking to the future, what is the future for leaders in energy industry like? What what is good leadership going to be? Do you imagine? So I I, I think it's really exciting. Many companies are redefining themselves as energy companies. Like I say, I'd like to see them start starting with the purpose. Some some say it's all around solving the energy trilemma, so clean, affordable, sustainable energy. If that's truly the case, why still so much emphasis on oil and gas? Why not more pace and urgency on the the renewables? So I'd like to see a kind of authentic kind of redefinition. There's still, don't get me wrong, clearly a requirement for for more oil and gas. But you know, I, I think everyone's got to really challenge themselves that it's consistent with one and a half degrees. And I, I'm not seeing enough on that. I think in terms of inspiring teams, I think technology is going to have a huge role to play. I'm on the board of the Net Zero Technology Center, and it's amazing some of the new ideas, innovations that are coming out. Very exciting. I've already talked about some of the things we're we're supporting, like the, the carbon storage, because unfortunately, we're at a point now where authorities like the Climate Change Committee you know, are very clear that we need these technologies. I wish we didn't, but we we desperately do. So huge amount of innovation to actually really optimize these things, do them at scale. But I think above all else, and we see this in the North Sea, it's taking a, a kind of integrated systemic view. There's simply not enough space in the North Sea for everyone to work in isolation and do their little bit. You know, we see this with offshore wind. We need a grid system rather than individual kind of 
connections, but we also that need to kind of work out how that's going to work with the carbon storage, how it's going to work with the hydrogen. So much more visionary, much more interconnected. That therefore brings in government. So we need industry, regulators, government to work together even more closely than they've done in the past. And, and we need therefore better relationships and real trust, less lobbying, more kind of grown-up conversations listening, respect. At the moment, I'm not seeing the trust that's really going to be required to achieve this transition at the pace that the climate emergency demands. Andy, you are after eight years coming to an end of your time at the Transition Authority. What now for you? What are you looking forward to? Yeah, so I am. Um, I qualified as an executive coach, and I'd love to. I'd love to do more coaching. If any listeners are, are interested in this kind of conversation, it'd be great to connect. I think, hopefully, particularly helping leaders do this at pace, working together, very different ways. It's my passion. I've moved down to North Devon. We've got an 85-acre coastal farm that we're actually managing for biodiversity. We're, we're actually in the North Devon biosphere, so I'm working with the, the team there who are just brilliant. So we planted thousands of trees, and next step, hopefully, is getting onto some wildflower meadows. We've also got space here to create retreats, so I'd like to combine some of my coaching, potentially with teamwork, some kind of a community space. We're building a yoga teaching center. I'm a big fan, and there's a increasing research on the kind of restorative power of nature. We're in a beautiful part of the world. People just come down with some kind of pro bono work, working with communities, just making you know what we've got on our doorstep much more widely available to others, I think would be something I'd love to do. Wonderful, Andy. Thank you so much for your thoughts today and wishing you the very best. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Elaine. Thanks for joining us for our second episode. Take a look at our show notes for more links and information. And please be sure to join us next time for a conversation with Andrew Wallace, founder and CEO of Unseen, an organization working towards the eradication of modern slavery. Until then, goodbye.